I'm Kate Daniels. Dr. Paul Zeitz is a physician, epidemiologist, and an award-winning advocate for global justice and human rights. I feel he's a great man to have as a guest on Father's Day. He's the father of five sons. And in addition, there's passion that Dr. Zeitz has to do good in the world, working for the health of our planet. And it's work to admire, but more to be inspired by, to find our place and the work that we need to do to make our planet healthy once again. Dr. Zeitz shares of his life and his work in his memoir, Waging Justice. And he's here to share some of that with us this morning. Dr. Paul Zeitz, good morning and so many thanks for taking your valuable time and spending it with us this morning. Good morning, Kate. It's great to be with you. I really am just in awe of all the work that you are doing, uh, this book that you have written that uh, serves to give us such an important story about the power of healing, about moving forward, about making change in the world, waging justice, a doctor's journey to speak truth and be bold. And you certainly have been and are living your life in this way. Yes, thank you. Uh, I wrote my memoir to share my journey. It was also for my own self-healing, and I wanted my sons to have a record of my experience uh, in life before they were born and even while I was raising them. And I thought I had that opportunity and responsibility. And uh, I just came from Texas where we had a journey to justice healing workshop with a church and a synagogue, and it was another reminder for me that Everyone is on a healing journey. We can heal ourselves, and when we're healed and healing, we're better able to heal the world. So that is really the intention of the book. And it really is um, what fits uh, hand in glove with uh, the work that you do as a physician, as an osteopathic physician, where healing is the complete body. Uh, Here, looking at how we heal ourselves, healing the planet seems to have kind of, it's a metaphor for each other. That's a great point. Yeah, I picked osteopathic medicine because it did take a holistic approach. It has the idea that you use every available intervention, including uh, manual medicine, uh, to help optimize the human body's uh, functionality. And so uh, my career, I evolved from that into global health and public health and preventive medicine. I worked on global AIDS and global infectious diseases for many years. And then I evolved into focusing on the social determinants of health, the injustice, the social, economic, and racial and gender injustices that block uh, quality and quantity of life. And now I've moved into uh, continuing to do all that while also adding on uh, our planetary health, which is in dire straits. So we have to uh, create a more healthy relationship with our planet so that we can uh, create, uh, restore the climate for future generations. And so I think it, it feels as though it extends that way from healing ourselves outwardly to putting that onto the planet. We can heal the planet when we have that focus, a real determined focus. Yeah, I think that uh, I talk a lot about commitment and making a commitment to my to myself uh, when I'm wanting to speak truth and be bold and helping my helping live a healthy life myself. 
but also having healthy relationships in my life. And then it extends into the community and into the world. And it's like a cycle. It's like mutually reinforcing. As I do my work in the world, it helps me heal my relationships and heal myself. And so I think it's important to keep that in mind as we move forward to really look at the situation that we really are finding ourselves in right now. Is it too extreme to say it's it's quite dire? I think that we're in the midst of a climate emergency. Uh, the outcome of it uh, could potentially be dire and uh, could affect the longevity of the human species. And that's not like uh, hyperbole. I'm not exaggerating. I think that's what experts are now uh, predicting, that if we don't mobilize now, then the consequences will be grave and dire. But we're also at that moment in time when we have the technology, we have the ability to transition to clean and renewable energy. We have the ability to uh, sequester carbon from the atmosphere that we've already pumped up there so that we can restore a safe and healthy climate. So by deploying all of our capabilities, our technology, our innovation, and our using information and communication technologies that are transformational right now, we can actually get on top of these challenges. But now's the time. We don't have another decade to wait. We have to actually mobilize now. And so, on the one hand, it's great that we think of ourselves, uh, what we do individually, and, and ultimately that is important, but it has to be much bigger, as you say, with corporations and political intent as well, to have the right intention to make these changes. Yeah, I think every individual action is critical. It's like a grain of sand in an oyster becomes a pearl. Uh, or every action becomes a ripple, and then it becomes a wave, and then it's a tsunami of transformation. So I think everything that every individual does is critically important. Like if you choose to uh, buy an electric vehicle, if you choose to put solar on your home, if you choose to recycle, if you choose to plant a thousand trees over the weekend, um, anything that you can do. And I would invite uh, your listeners to challenge themselves, how can we go how can we be bolder? How can we go further faster? How can we like, stretch ourselves and sort of extend out of our comfort zones, recognizing that we're at this critical threshold? We're at a moment where we have to actually accelerate and bold, boldly take action. And then, as you say, it does affect every institution, every school, every hospital, every business, every public sector uh, entity in, at the county, state, and local and and global level, every institution has to recognize that we need a mobilization on the scale like we had at World War II when we were fighting an evil, uh, you know, political regime, Nazi fascism. We have to mobilize not only in the United States, but globally at that throttle, like the Manhattan Project throttle, like deploying all of our capabilities. And where does the United States fit here? We've we think of ourselves, we've thought of ourselves as this leader, but it doesn't feel like we're necessarily a leader. Sometimes it feels like we're an impediment. <laughs> um, America is in a paradoxical moment right now. I think, uh, you know, in terms of technological uh, revolutions and innovations, 
we are a leader. And as a people who are committed to life, liberty, and the pursuit of justice, uh, we are leaders in that as, as, people, as a people. Uh, in terms of the climate emergency, uh, we're the second largest emitter on the planet, and we're the largest per capita CO2 emitter, uh, and we have been for the last uh, several decades. So we, uh, uh, we've been a major perpetrator, if you will, of the climate emergency. And uh, so that, I think, requires us to really step up and throttle up and bring forward the best of America, uh, the best of our capabilities to help solve the problem here at home, but also contribute and support the global efforts. And so uh, there are many cities and local governments that are mobilizing aggressively. The Washington, D.C. is committed to 100% renewable by 2032. That's the most ambitious plan in the country so far. State of California committed to transition by 2045 to 100% renewable and clean and renewable energy. So we're seeing uh, city after city, many states, there's 26 or so states that where most of the American population lives that have bold and transformative agendas to address climate, to be compliant with the Paris Climate Treaty. So all that's beautiful, but we need to go further and faster, and we need to do it everywhere. And doing it in that way, certainly having these conversations is important and, and spreading the word, but it feels like it has to, we are at this critical point, as you were saying earlier, Dr. Zeitz. How do we really make it move faster? Well, I think every list, every person in your listenership uh, can bring it up in their family, can bring it up in their church, their synagogue, their schools, their work, and start asking the questions, what else can we do? What else can we do? And uh, there's uh, going to be a major disruption in the next decade where we're going to be transitioning to clean and renewable energy because it's actually cheaper. Wind and solar are now cheaper than fossil fuels. So the market is driving uh, this transformation right now, which is a beautiful thing, but we can implement it faster um, at, at every level. And uh, we can take action uh, by educating young people about what the actions are that they can take to live more sustainably. Um, I just came back from Sweden where I was last week, where they're like a step ahead in terms of really restructuring their entire society to make it what they call a circular economy. So Everything that they waste gets recycled and gets reused, and so they become a more sustainable uh, community, and they're living in balance with Earth in a way that is not taking advantage and destroying the, the space that they're living in. And I think that kind of shift in to, uh, from where we are now, which is extraction and consumption, take, take, have more, have more, into, like, do we really need all that? And how can we reuse what we have? And how can we... Uh, use everything and, and do everything more efficiently and in balance with the planet. So we're, we're on the cusp of that transition. It's very exciting. Absolutely. And so it, there's this hope that's the beacon we, we move towards and we want to embrace to continue that kind of momentum. And it is going to make a change in the way that we look at things and uh, We'll do things differently, and we need to look at that in a positive mindset, don't we? Yeah, it will change the way we live and the way we work. I mean, there's got to be a reckoning of how we define the American dream at a macro level. 
you know, right now it's like have your own home and have your three cars and be able to travel wherever you want and, you know, buy as much as you want. That has somehow become how we define it. And now I think we have to think about, well, how much space do we really need to live in balance with Earth? Can we live vertically in tall buildings so that we're using energy more efficiently? Uh, can we, uh, you know, recycle more aggressively and reduce the use of uh, plastics and other materials that are deg degradating our environment? Um, and then we're going to have to deal with the climate uh, crisis because it's already affecting our weather patterns. As you know, there's been uh, hurricanes and floods and droughts and fires. That's just the tip of the iceberg. As the crisis worsens over the next decade, uh, I would expect that there will be more intense weather patterns that will affect more and more Americans and people around the world. And there will be migrations that occur and there will be refugee, climate refugees that communities are going to have to become resilient to, how to adapt to changing populations. Um, there's a lot of challenges that we have to get ahead of here. And so as a scientist and w with all of the connections that you have and you know, the continued learning that you have, how does this kind of reversal take effect? Uh, we've spent decades, we've spent the last century accelerating toward this point. Is it going to take a century to turn it around to get back to a place where the earth is going to be more stable and habitable? I don't think we have a century. I think we have the next 30 years. And so I'm working as part of a coalition and a movement of folks working on what we're calling climate restoration. And the objective of climate restoration is to return the CO2 levels in the atmosphere to under 300 parts per million back to the way it was when our grandparents were alive and also the way it was through the thousands of years of the human experience on the planet. We, you know, humans have been around for about 125,000 years, and throughout that whole history, uh, the CO2 levels in the atmosphere were under 300 parts per million. Now we're at 415 parts per million, and we're going up to 450 probably with the current uh, emissions. The last time the CO2 was at that level, there were palm trees on the North Pole. So we're in uncharted territory in terms of how this uh, uh, situation is going to unfold. Um, but what we do know is that we have available technologies to sequester carbon in concrete, for example, and uh, capture it permanently and uh, start removing the gigatons of CO2 that we have up in the atmosphere. We can restore the Arctic ice, which is rapidly melting, and protect it so that it can uh, remain frozen and that is important because there's uh, gigatons of methane underneath the Arctic permafrost. And if that gets released, then we're in a dire situation. Uh, so we have available technologies, and I'm excited to say to you and your listeners that there is a political momentum underway to start pushing for carbon-negative building materials, start sequestering the excess carbon, as well as this transition to clean and renewable energy, which is both both tracks are imperative. So you really captured my attention talking about the Arctic and how we can stop the ice from melting. We literally are able, we have the technology or the ability to do that? 
Well, I think that the the, the Arctic ninety five percent of old Arctic ice is already gone, and so right now there's an annual cycle where the Arctic freezes and then melts. And so what we're uh, what our objective is with the Foundation for Climate Restoration is to uh, maintain Arctic ice for at least eight months per year. And so what there are technologies that are available. There's a group called Ice 911, and you can check out their website, ice911.org. They are um, putting out uh, synthetic sand on, along on the ice and increasing the reflectivity by uh, 20%. So the ice melts 20% slower, and that way it can be maintained for eight out of 12 months of the year. So we're trying, they're working on mobilizing. They've done this at a demonstration level. They proved that it works. They proved that there are no negative side effects. And now they would like to mobilize this and bring this to scale, not all over the 4,000 square miles of the Arctic. That would be too, too uh, massive and unrealistic. But they've done climate modeling. They're, they're working with NASA on identifying the critical zones of the Arctic where this kind of technology could be applied and, and to maintain the Arctic ice so that this permafrost uh, is sustained sufficiently so the methane gas release has not, won't, won't be released. So that's one solution. There are others. And, you know, we want to unleash American ingenuity, American creativity to come forward and help mobilize, as I said earlier, a, a massive mobilization to restore the climate. Uh, we don't have all the answers, but we know that we can, we can get there. We believe in the spirit of human ingenuity and American ingenuity as well. And there's hope with a capital H is that we don't have, we don't want to be continuing business as usual because it's gotten us to such a bad place. But if we use that kind of creativity and put it into effect, you're saying, to create new ways of doing things to restore our planet, it, I mean, that potential exists, doesn't it? It does exist, and it has given me hope to know that it exists. And uh, for me, like uh, a year ago, I hadn't even heard of these possibilities. And now I've been studying them and working with the experts, and I'm thrilled to go into meetings with members of Congress and with uh, people all over the country and the world and share that this is possible. Because I think people have felt hopeless, resigned, cynical, and they, you know, they default into – it doesn't matter what I do. We're, we're sunk anyway. And uh, I think the opportunity and the vision of restoring a safe and healthy climate for future generations, I mean, we're all human. We all want our children and our grandchildren and future generations to have a safe, a safe and healthy climate so they can experience the gift of life like we have, like we are now. And that is something that can connect all of us. There's not a single human that I've met it doesn't aspire for that for that goal. So we can bridge the political divides. We can bridge the cultural divides, and we can work together for a safe and healthy climate. Because as uh, the students who have been uh, rallying and and having their marches, they are saying. We're all on this planet. There is no other planet that we're going to be moving to. If we can't take care of this one, then uh, definitely we're in, in dire straits. Absolutely right. And you'll see over the next year and couple years, several years, the, 
the continued acceleration and expansion of this youth-led movement. We have uh, the Friday strikes. We have the Extinction Rebellion. We have the Sunrise Movement. Today in Washington, the Citizens Climate Lobby, it is some students, but it's more uh, middle class people, Republican, Democrat from all over the country that are on Capitol Hill lobbying for specific legislation to dramatically address the climate emergency. And there's an emergence of what I call climate, a green Republicans. Uh, Republicans are very smart people. They understand what's going on. And there are many corporations. Uh, the U.S. military is fully mobilized in trying to uh, deal with uh, the upcoming climate aspects. And they're on board with uh, mobilizing everything we can do to prevent this catastrophe. So there's many elements of our society that are moving fast and moving in the right direction. And unfortunately, there are some nodes of people that are still sticking to some past views. But we all have to work together, and so the door is always open. And, you know, those of us who are committed and clear, we're moving forward boldly now. Bold. That is a, a very important word. You've used that certainly throughout your life, and uh, sharing it with us is encouraging us to em- embrace that boldness as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think when you live a committed life, then you can actually cultivate a courage within you to speak truth to yourself and to others. You can be bold and you can see that every person can do so much when they step forward, when they're committed and courageous. And I myself have had many moments and many months and many weeks where I'm cautious and confused or I'm even aware that I'm complicit and complacent. And so what I've tried to do with my own life is live with what I call self-imposed persistent optimism, HIPO. So I I generate myself each day to live with self-imposed persistent optimism. And when I'm optimistic, when I'm successful at that, and I'm not always successful, but when I am successful, then I'm more able to be committed and courageous. And then I'm able to speak truth, be bold, and serve justice for all. And so that is the invitation, and that is the opportunity that I see for every person to uh, live a committed and courageous life. And with respect to any issue that you care about, but I hope that many people will consider the climate emergency as, uh, as one of your top priorities. Well, it definitely impacts us on a very personal level. It's our life. So how can we not want to be dedicated to pursuing all of these ways of making it have positive results? I agree. I I think you're right. I mean, I think everyone agrees that uh, we should focus on uh, restoring a safe and healthy climate for ourselves, but also for future generations. And if we stand in the awareness that we are, we as each individual are a a mirror or a beacon for future generations, then it gives us the kind of agency and the power to step forward and take bold and transformational action. And I mean, do it now. Don't wait. Go big. Go now. Go fast. Bring urgency, speed, and ambition. Raise the ambition. Oh, absolutely. And I feel that you inspire us, well, certainly this morning with your enthusiasm, but in your book, 
waging justice, a doctor's journey to speak truth and be bold. Here again, you know, sharing your life's journey, which is really encouraging and, you know, your honesty is really another kind of beacon saying, you know, here's how I went through my life, my earlier life, and the changes and, you know, striking out for something and amazing how doors will open and what that boldness can bring. Uh, So I'm grateful for this book, Waging Justice. I think it's something that we owe ourselves to uh, pick up a copy and immerse ourselves and, and learn. Yes, thank you. I I spent a lot of time deciding whether or not to write a book, and I really decided that we. I feel like we have the solutions to all these global challenges. What we don't have is people's hearts and minds, and so I felt like my one contribution or one way that I could serve was to share my heart and my Mm -hmm. vulnerability in uh, in a way that would allow people to explore their own journey and their own obstacles to fulfilling their dreams for themselves and for our world. And so, yeah, I'm extremely vulnerable in the book about my ups and downs inside of myself, my struggles with self-hatred and self-sabotage, my relationship journey, and also my when I am committed and courageous, like sometimes things don't go according to the plan. And, you know, I've run into the uh, challenges. I've been asked to leave uh, this organization or that organization, but I stuck true to my values. And so learning how to navigate our inner values with the outer world is what I share in the book, my experiences within that. And what I've heard from many readers is that it helps them reflect on their own journey and they leave more inspired and courageous. And I love that. I love when I hear stories about, you know, I had this, uh, this or that going on in my life. And I remember this story from your book, and I became more courageous in what I had to deal with in my own life. That was why I wrote the book, and I'm starting to get that kind of feedback from many readers. Yes, when we share our stories that way, I think we are a great encouragement to uh, to each other because we don't feel like, oh, it's only me, so I may as well give up. We see that, oh, no, there's kind of this universal story that's going on. That's an interesting point. Yeah, we all have our our journey. We're all on a journey and we're all, you know, aiming towards self-realization or self-fulfillment in one way or the other. And so, yeah, I share my journey and everyone is on some kind of journey. And I think now we also have this opportunity and I would argue a responsibility to look at the journey of the human species. Because that's also on at stake right now. Yes. Uh, the the sixth mass extinction is underway on the planet. The UN just published a report uh, last month showing that a million species have been uh, removed because of human behavior. And so, really, the future of our species, I believe, is at stake. And so, we have to have our local internal view, and we have to now also look at the whole planet, the whole global family that we're part of, and take action that's equal to the challenges that we face and the opportunity that we have to create a better world for future generations. Oh, absolutely. And that word hope with a capital H or all caps is is right there. We can do it. That's but we're at that point that we have to act. There's no sitting back and thinking someone else is going to do it. It takes each and every one of us. Exactly. And, you know, and the other thing that I've learned and I would like to share is that 
when you realize that many of the big changes that might happen within a community uh, or in a church or in a synagogue or in a, a mosque are a few people that got together and decided that they wanted to bring forward new ways of doing business or new changes. They wanted to bring solar. They wanted to uh, work in the community to make sure everyone in the community had solar energy. Um, and then when you think about advocacy and getting your representatives that are running your city government, your county government, your state government, or even at the federal level, it's a few people that are tenacious and persistent that can bring forward a commitment from our policymakers for doing something bold and transformational. So I encourage people to check out uh, the Citizens Climate Lobby or the Foundation for Climate Restoration or any organization that you feel called to, uh, the Earth Day Network. There's many, many different pathways for engagement. And let's mention your website because there's a lot of ways to connect with you and also then really make connections with all these other organizations as well. Yes, thank you. My website is Dr. Paul Zeitz, uh, D-R-P-A-U-L-Z-E-I-T-Z dot org. And I have a website with many resources and many links to all these organizations. And I have action alerts about the things that I'm working on. And uh, we're trying to build a movement for 2020. And we're inviting everyone to join the movement to really usher forth a more just and peaceful world. And that's where we all really want and choose to be. I am so grateful for who you are and what you are doing, Dr. Zeitz. And thank you, certainly, for spending this important time with us this morning. Thank you, Kate.